You're listening to Westminster on the Fly, a podcast from the Appalachian Roundtable with your host, Pastor Andy Steyer. Hello, welcome to Westminster on the Fly. I'm your host, Pastor Andy Steyer. I am uh, the pastor of Canal St. Lean's Presbyterian Church in Malden, West Virginia, which uh, is just a few miles east of the capital city of Charleston. And we, uh, in this podcast, are working our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechisms. Last time, we dealt with the question of what are the decrees of God. The decrees of God uh, are uh, the, 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 sorry, the decrees of God are his uh, eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And I said last week that up until that, that question, everything that we've been talking about has sort of been um, non-controversial or should be non-controversial for Bible-believing Christians. We talked about why mankind is creative. We talked about the nature of God. We talked about the nature of the sacred scriptures. All of that is generally agreed upon by Bible-believing Christians. Um, By the time you start talking about the decrees of God, though, you realize you're starting to get into what we might say are some of the distinctives of confessionally reformed uh, theology. Because the decrees of God obviously take us into areas of God's sovereignty, Issues of foreordination, predestination, election, and uh, while we aren't quite getting into all of that yet, although foreordination certainly we did discuss in the last episode, uh, we do realize that these are things that not every true Bible-believing Christian agrees on, Uh, but uh, they are part of our doctrinal standards as confessional Presbyterians, and so we need to talk about them, we need to understand them, and uh, as we continue to think about the decrees of God this week, uh, the questions we are looking at deal with how God carries out his decrees. In fact, that is what question and answer number eight of the Shorter Catechism deals with. Question eight, how does God execute his decrees? The answer is, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Two ways, creation and providence. We're going to talk about that. This week, we're really going to focus on the work of creation. Next week, we will talk about the works of God's providence. Uh, But in question eight, to start with, the catechism really wants us to focus on the fact that God does indeed execute his decrees. He doesn't uh, simply decree something in the counsel of his own will and then let come what may. This is very important. We, we, we can be assured that whatever God does decree, he will carry out to completion. That's really the point of uh, this eighth question and answer. It's it's reminding us that God is sovereign, not only over whatsoever comes to pass, but he's also sovereign 
over the way in which all things are carried out to completion. Building off of what the decrees of God are, um, or as as we talked about last week, uh, this week, really, we can, especially in question and answer number eight, Number eight, we can really rest assured that not only does God ordain whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory and for the good of those who love him, we can have confidence as well uh, in knowing that the means through which these things are carried out, through which the decrees of God are executed, uh, the means themselves have sovereignly been ordained by our good and loving God. Uh, furthermore, because we know that God is executing his decrees actively and is sovereign over their execution, uh, we can have confidence that the decrees of God will never fail. They can't be defeated. They can't be derailed. God will never be thrown for a loop. No power in all of creation can stop or hinder the decrees of God. Question and answer number eight of the catechism really Uh, I think is drilling home this point and pointing us towards the ways through which God ensures that his decrees are carried out to completion. But all of this is centered around the fact, the reality that we serve a great and powerful God, a God who does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's what question and answer number eight is uh, reminding us of. And then the catechism moves into question and answer number nine, then examining the works of creation and, and the works of providence. And number question and answer number nine asks, what is the work of creation? What is the work of creation? And the answer is the work of creation is God making all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about, right? Hebrews 11 verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The authors of the confession here, they sidestep debates about whether the days of creation are, are literal six days or whether they describe cycles or spans of time. Uh, and, and we know from the, the minutes, the notes of the Westminster Assembly, that the divines were not uniform and their views on such things uh, concerning the six days of creation, which I find very interesting. Uh, but they were not uniform in their views of these things any more than maybe what Bible-believing Christians today uh, or Bible-believing Christians really throughout the centuries have been uh, their views, you know, the, the, the opinions have... Uh, <laughs> how do I want to say this? They were not united in holding to one view concerning the six days of creation any more than Christians throughout the centuries have been united in one view. So instead, what do they do? Well, in writing the confession and the catechisms, they fall back 
upon biblical language to create this beautifully concise answer uh, concerning the work of creation. Here, the Catechism, in summarizing, really in summarizing the Westminster Confession of Faith, is stating that creation is not eternal in nature. That is very important. Creation is not eternal in nature. It had a beginning. God created it. And only in God does creation have its existence. And how did God create it? The Catechism says he created it by the word of his power in the space of six days, whatever that six days means, all very good. But then the Catechism says he made it out of nothing. God created it ex nihilo. I'm sure some of you have heard that phrase. Uh, it literally means out of nothing. God needed nothing, more th- nothing other than the power of his word to bring all things into existence. And he formed all of creation this way, out of nothing by the power of his word, and it was all very good. This is how we are to think of the work of creation. All the scientific ponderings, all the debates, uh, I think they are important on some level. And I don't want to in any way discredit those discussions. But if we get caught up in those things, especially as Bible-believing Christians, if we get caught up uh, in this whole idea of you know, what does the Hebrew word for day mean? Does it mean a literal 24-hour solar day? Or does it describe a span of time or things like that? If that's what we get caught up in, we really run the risk of missing the greater theological significance of the creation account. Here in the work of creation, we see an amazing display of God's power, God's creativity, God's goodness. And we should marvel at how God, by the power of his word, could bring all things into existence out of nothing. That is so unlike us, right? Mankind, we are wonderfully creative. And we should recognize our creativity is not limited to being able to create beautiful things. We are, we are also wonderfully creative in how we destroy things, But one thing that we, as men, as humans, cannot do is create something from nothing. We can't even create nothing from something, right? For the human, matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Can we, as humans, even get our minds around the existence or the idea of nothing? Think about that. Do you ever think about what nothing really is? Every thought and idea in our head is influenced and shaped by the world around us. It goes back to the finite, right? All of our thoughts are finite. And our finite minds simply cannot comprehend this idea of nothing. Yet God, who is infinite and eternal simply spoke into nothing and brought forth all things. That is such a mind freak, and that is, <laughs> that, is, that is so amazing. We 
we know, of course, today that the creation we see now is not as it was intended to be. The Confession talks about how God created all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. As we think about this, and we think through this question and answer, we think about what it means to God for God to create by the word of his power, what it means for God to bring all things out of nothing. Now we think about what it means that God created all things very good. We look at the creation, and we know that it is no longer good in the sense that it has been perverted and stained by the effects of sin. All of creation is touched by the sin of mankind. And so just like we really can't comprehend the idea of bringing all things out of nothing, we also cannot fully comprehend what creation was like before sin, before uh, the fall of man, before we brought ruin upon it. It's simply, you know, it's, it's out of our wheelhouse. We have not seen a creation that is very good yet. It's not part of our life experience. Now, we all, I think, have had moments where we've gotten a taste of the goodness of the original creation. You know, people ask me, for example, why do you love fly fishing? Um, And there's a lot of answers to that question, but part of the reason why is because uh, in those moments where I am surrounded by nothing but the streams and the mountains and the trees and, you know, native brook trout whose colors would, you know, rival even the most brilliant of sunsets. In those moments, I do feel as if I'm getting a small taste of an unspoiled creation and it is good. Now I'm brought back to reality as I'll round the corner and there's trash laying alongside the stream or I can hear the cars driving by or I see evidence of people manipulating the stream, stacking rocks and building dams and things like that. I'm brought back to reality that although I may get a taste of the good creation, it is still ruined by sin. But in moments like that, when I have that, just even that small taste, uh, you know, it's, it's my hope that when I, when I experience those moments, that my own heart would turn towards the beauty and the power and the wonder, not of the creation itself, but of the creator who brought all of it out of nothing. And I hope that when I experience those things, um, I remember that although the good creation is tainted and perverted and twisted by sin, the one who created it is not. 
And the one who created it will indeed one day restore it. Restore it to a state of goodness that is even better than the original creation. Because when, uh, when he restores it, it will be to a state and a condition that will never and can never be tainted and ruined by sin ever again. So this is God's work of creation. Uh, there's a lot to be said about it. It should fill our hearts with wonder and awe and worship uh, and gratitude and eager expectation for uh, the day when Christ returns. We know that all things in heaven and on earth are being reconciled to God right now through Jesus Christ. And one day when Christ returns, that, that work of renewal and reconciliation and recreation will be fully and completely consummated. And we will see creation as it was intended to be. And really, we will see creation uh, in an even better state than it was uh, during those first six days of God's creative power. So that's uh, question and answer number nine. Now question and answer number 10. Uh, as we continue to look at the work of creation, uh, question and answer number 10 of the Catechism focuses in specifically on the creation of man. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created him. We see here mankind being set apart from the rest of creation. Now, I don't care what your views on creation are. If you're a Bible-believing Christian and you believe in young earth creationism or old earth creationism, you must believe that mankind is a special act of God's creation. God set mankind apart from the rest of creation. We are given a special value in that we, unlike the animals, the trees, the plants, the river, everything else, we are created in the image of God. And the Catechism defines what we mean when we talk about man being created in the image of God. We know from scriptures and earlier in the Catechism that God is a spirit. And as our children's Catechism says, does not have a body like man. Uh, if you're not familiar with the children's Catechism or the first Catechism, it's, uh, it's newer uh, but it's sort of an abbreviated version of the shorter catechism. It's used to taught very young children, although I find it uh, very profound and helpful in teaching adults as well. But the shorter cat or the children's catechism says, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Therefore, uh, the divine image, this idea that mankind is created in the image of God, it does not refer, to our physical bodies. Very important. This is not saying that we look like God. But rather, as uh, Alexander White puts it in his commentary on the Catechism, 
It is in man's soul and in his mind and in his conscience and in his heart that we are created in the image of God. And we can see the divine image in man most perfectly, not from looking at Adam, the first man created, but rather at Jesus Christ, who is the image, as Colossians 1.15 says, the image of the invisible God. In Christ, we see the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of the Father, the knowledge of the law of God. We see in Christ righteousness, as not only did Jesus know the law, but he obeyed it and kept it perfectly. He knew his Father. He knew his will. He submitted to the will of his Father in his earthly life in perfect obedience, We see Christ's holiness, and while it might be difficult to distinguish between righteousness and holiness, uh, the Catechism lists them both as part of being uh, the image of God, uh, because uh, in Christ, his holiness was uh, the, and, and is, really the hidden root of his outward righteousness. In other words, when we look at Christ and we see the image of God in man fully expressed, uh, we, we realize that the reason Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life was because inwardly he was and is perfectly holy. Uh, all of his affections were turned towards his father And in Jesus Christ, we see the power and authority of God uh, as Jesus demonstrated his authority, his own dominion, not merely over the creatures of the world, but also over demons, over disease, over worldly powers, even over sin and death itself. So what does it mean for man to be made in the image of God, well, we can look to Jesus Christ, God who took on the image of man, lived among us, and in his earthly life and ministry, we see the image of God fully manifest in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the divine image in man It can't fully be realized in us. In other words, we we won't learn what the image of God is by looking at Adam, by looking at ourselves. We have to look at the greater Adam, Jesus Christ. And there Christ shows us what it means for mankind to be made in the image of God. Um. He is the eternally expressed image of God's person. So uh, if we want to understand this idea of what it means for man to be made in the image of God, then uh, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because here in the person of Christ, we can fully understand what it means uh, to be image bearers. Of God. I think that's enough for today. Hopefully that's helpful for all of us. I know uh, maybe some of you listening were 
were hoping that I would get into issues of uh, mankind being made male and female, uh, which, of course, is very culturally controversial, but relevant right now. And and I don't want to brush past those things. Obviously, I think here uh, in in man being created in the image of God, male and female, it's very clearly stated that there are two genders, two sexes, and I don't believe that gender and sex can be separated. There are male and there are female, and God created you one or the other, and any confusion around the way that God created you, how you feel, or even biologically, if there are medical issues uh, which add confusion as to uh, one's own sexual identity or uh, gender identity, that is all a result of sin. Uh, that is all a result of the fall. And so I'm not trying to intentionally brush past those things, you know, not trying to avoid any controversy or, you know, avoid getting this podcast canceled uh, or whatever. Uh, I really just, my intent here was to focus more on God's work of creation and turn our attention towards Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, so that we can truly learn by looking at Christ what it means for mankind to be made in God's image. So again, I hope this was helpful for you all. Um, hope you will join us next time. Uh, we will begin to look at God's works of providence, uh, a great truth that reminds us that God is not simply a passive creator. He did not just create all things, set the world on its axis, and then let everything go. But God is sovereignly today at work governing all of his creatures and all of his actions. So we will be looking at that next week. I hope you will join us. Uh, So long for now.